Well, the title of this morning's message is At Rest in a Restless World. And it is a privilege, again, to be able to come to the Word of God given to us, tried seven times, as Alan read earlier, profitable for teaching and for correction, for reproof. This is God's Word, and it is good and I trust he has much to teach us in it. Book of Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4 we'll pick up this morning. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Our Father, we look to you as we come to your word, knowing that apart from your spirit, we will not understand what we look at, knowing, Lord, that were your word not powerful, were it not living and active, if you were not behind it, sending it sovereignly to accomplish its ends, Lord, it would bear no fruit in our lives But Lord, you've given your word to reveal yourself and to reveal your will and to help us to know you. And that's our request this morning, that we would know you still more and that, Lord, you might secure us in the peace that you secured for us at the cross of Christ. And it's in our Savior's name we pray. Amen. I believe it was Augustine who said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And the Lord Jesus himself affirmed this very principle that we are in fact restless, that we are without rest, when he said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest for your souls. From the earliest chapter of the Bible, we find the theme of rest in God. God wants you to be at rest in a restless world. And this is a restless world, isn't it? And after we've found our rest in Christ, it's true if you've known anything about living in this life that the winds of the world continue to stir up the sea and continue to batter the bow of our lives, and to tear at the sail, don't they? But there is ballast for you as a believer in Jesus Christ. Those things that keep the ship upright in storms, you you know what ballast is. It's nautical language, though it's used in other fields. When we're speaking of a boat, is that weight that is added to the keel of a boat, the the lower parts of a boat, that keep that boat planted and stable and upright 
keep it from capsizing. I don't know if you're old enough to remember, but my parents purchased me a stand-up inflatable clown that had a round base with sand or some kind of ballast in it. I think they were contributing to my toxic masculinity because the thing is you could beat the snot out of this, but it would always come back to you, right? And you could slug it again. I think they were protecting my sisters, really. Some of you maybe will remember the the song about those things called weevils that would not fall down, right? Weevils wobble, but they do not fall down. And it's because they had ballast. Well, it's the same thing in a boat. There is that keel that is heavily weighted. It's, It's weighted with lead or even concrete or water to keep that ship upright in high seas. And so as you face the storms in your life, and those storms will in fact come, I would say to you that it's not so much about your navigational skills as we look at this text, but Paul is trying to put ballast in your Christian life. He's trying to put weight behind your faith. He gives us a series of imperatives, commandments, And he wants to load the Philippians' vessel with these things to keep them upright in the storms that they are facing. And he's he's giving us very specific directives, really ultimately that are aimed at maintaining, establishing, supporting, keeping upright the Christian's peace. Look at verse 7. Note that it begins, And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Look at the end of verse 9. And the God of peace will be with you. Paul's trying to see us established in peace and gaining enough ballast to remain at peace in the midst of life's stormy journey. So this morning we'll look at five principles. Well, no we won't. We'll look at two of five principles, commands really that Paul is giving us for honoring Christ as we rest in him. That's really the point. How are you going to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? How will you honor him? And you'll do that, Paul says, by being at rest, by being at peace. Every one of us is responsible for the application of these principles. If you are to know rest in a restless world, you must first cultivate a life of continual joy. You must cultivate a life of continual joy. Now, it goes without saying, doesn't it, that everyone can experience some measure of joy in this life when everything is going well when there are no clouds in your world, when everything is blue skies and sunshine. Job said that man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. Last week I talked about flipping over, a, uh, like in a game of Pictionary, one of those, those hourglasses where the sand is going through and when things are going well, you feel like you flip that thing over and you know that in time, right, something is going to come down the pike. And God uses trial, God uses trouble in our lives to grow us. 
So none of us lead a trouble-free life. None of us sail on perpetually calm seas. And the challenge, really, then, of this commandment that Paul's going to give us is not simply to be joyful. The challenge is in being continually joyful, perpetually joyful, never ceasing in joy. That really is the nature of this commandment. The question is, can you have joy when the wind is in your face? Can you have joy when you are encountering trouble in this life? And the Bible's answer to that question is yes. And not only yes, but yes, you must. You see, this is the Christian's perpetual perspective. What Paul is getting at here is a spiritual outlook. It is a, a disposition of heart, and, and I want you to note this, that must be cultivated. This will not simply come to you in the wind. It is true that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. It is true that joy is always a factor in every Christian's life at some level, but what Paul is trying to teach us here is that you've got to consciously pursue that joy. This is a duty. This is a discipline in the Christian life. And this is a commandment to be obeyed. To neglect joy in Christ is every bit as sinful as any other sin or violation of the commandment of God. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now, we've talked about this in this letter because this is the theme of this letter. Fifteen times in this letter, there, there's an explicit reference to joy. And Christian joy, as you know, is not dependent upon circumstances. It is not temporal. It is not fleeting. And Paul himself doesn't simply preach these things. He is, in fact, living these things before us as a good shepherd. Chapter 1 and verse 4, he prayed with joy. Chapter 1 and verse 18, he rejoiced in his imprisonment because it was, it was resulting in greater preaching of the gospel by others in his absence. Paul was joyful at the thought that he might soon be released and be able to, to be with the Philippians. Paul also rejoiced at the thought that the time of his departure was near, that he would be poured out in death in service to Christ. Paul rejoiced in the Philippians themselves, in Christ's people. He called them, you remember, my joy and crown. Paul ultimately has learned how to rejoice in all circumstances. If you look down to verse 11, Paul thanks them for their kindness to him. And Paul says, not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. I know how to get along with humble means, and I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see, Paul was fixed on Christ, and he knew whatever the circumstances, he had learned how to be content. That's another way of saying, I learned how to be at rest. I've learned how to be at peace. I have learned the secret of rejoicing no matter the circumstance.
And so he calls the Philippians very specifically in chapter 3 and verse 1 to rejoice in the Lord. And he does so again here in this text, chapter 4 and verse 4. Now, why does Paul go repeating this over and over and over again? Well, one reason is we can assume safely that the Philippians did not know this in their Christian life. They were a little down in the mouth. And so Paul keeps coming to them, and they had reason to be down in the mouth. They were persecuted. They had trouble outside the church. They had trouble inside the church. There were people coming and and bringing false doctrine, teaching them to put their hope in their own righteousness and in the keeping of Mosaic rites and rituals. There was another group, the Libertines, who were coming in and saying, hey, sin away because grace is great, and you can just have a party in Jesus, and it'll all be good at the end. These people were, were unsettled. There was, a, there was an argument, you remember, between these two women that was breeding dissension in the church. And Paul says, look, you've got to learn to rejoice in all circumstances. And I believe he says this again. He's making an emphasis of it because joy is a cardinal characteristic of the Christian life. It's like love. It's like hope. To know Jesus, beloved, is to know joy. And a joyless Christian is an oxymoron. I didn't just call you a moron. I said it's an oxymoron. That, you know what that means, right? It's inconsistent. Military intelligence, you, you know the old deal, right? So a joyless Christian is a contradiction in terms. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, quote, To Paul, it was a tragedy that any Christian should be unhappy. Unhappiness was a denial of their profession of faith. Now, a number of times as we've made our way through Philippians, we've contrasted joy in the Lord with the fleeting experience of happiness in this world. They're not the same thing. Joy is certainly more than happiness, but can I say it is not less I don't want to undersell joy as though somehow it's some invisible sort of pseudo-happiness. The guy who's, who, who, who's, who's extricated himself from society, who goes to a cave just to pray and to meditate and to rejoice in the Lord, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about some kind of put-on. This is not, Paul's trying to deal with an Eeyore faith. That sort of pathetic attitude towards life where you're just down in the mouth, in the doldrums, a heart full of complaint, a heart full of burden, a heart full of sorrow, a heart full of discouragement, a heart full of disappointment. Paul says, look, that is inconsistent with your profession of faith in Jesus Christ. That is not the way it's to be in the Christian life. There is not to be a perpetual cloud over your world. Joy in the Lord manifests itself. It should manifest itself in buoyancy, 
of spirit and of a life that is, is at rest. It is a life that is at peace. And the point I'm trying to make is simply this, that Christian joy is evident. People should see it. Your wife should see it. Your children should see it. The church should see it. Those people you work with should see it. They may not know what it is, but they know they want it. Christian joy transcends circumstance. It is inward. It is experiential. It is hearty. It is enduring. Even in the face of deep sorrow, but joy in the Lord is apparent and it's visible and it's observable. And I think Lloyd-Jones is right, that if you, if you are leading a life of persistent unhappiness, it is a denial of the believer's profession of faith. Life, a life that is filled with gloom is empty of faith. And I know that doesn't come easily to some of you, particularly who are going through hard times at this time. And I want you to be patient. I don't want you to grow angry with me <laughs> yet. But, 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 but I, do, I, I want you to listen to what the scripture is saying and to weigh these things for yourselves. Paul commands the Philippians to continual joy. Look at it, verse four again. Note this, rejoice in the Lord. This is a command. This is an imperative. This is not a recommendation for a happier life. This isn't a self-help sort of deal. This is a directive for a God-honoring life. And the verb tense here stresses constancy. This is to be our perpetual pattern of life, that we are rejoicing in the Lord. Every circumstance, every trial, every day, always, Paul says. In fact, it's very redundant. It's as if Paul is saying, be always rejoicing in the Lord, always and again I say, <laughs> rejoice. He's anticipating, isn't he, that some of us might say when he says rejoice always, we might look at him with that sort of like, Paul, seriously, come on now, you don't, you don't mean this. No, he means it. He couldn't be more serious. In fact, it's interesting, he uses the future tense there. Did you catch that? Rejoice presently, continuously, in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. It's almost as if he, he takes the Philippians and he says, brothers and sisters, listen, repeatedly I have called you to rejoice in Jesus Christ. And I can feel it. Some of you are protesting. You're wanting to say to me, Paul, don't you understand? Life is painful. It's agonizing. There are times in life that are really, really, really hard. Paul says, listen, I know you're discouraged and I know that you face trouble right now, but my answer will not change. Again, I will say to you, rejoice in the Lord. You'll note that this is a very specific commandment that gives us a very specific place, or really better, a person in whom we rejoice. It is a call to rejoice in Christ. Remember our definition for joy. It's gladness in God for all of his goodness to you in Christ. Jesus Christ is both the source of our joy and the very reason for our joy. And that inner gladness 
that we are to have is the result of all that we are and all that we have and all that has been promised to us in Christ. And it's when we lose sight of him that we grow downtrodden. I love this because joy is something that God gives by the indwelling spirit to every child of his. And he gives us a specific place to fix our attention so that our joy might be full. The Bible never leaves us, does it, to gin up joy in our lives. We don't, it's not Bobby McFerrin sort of don't worry be happy. It's not, it's not some sort of nebulous buck up. It's very specific. And I also love this about the scriptures. The scriptures never exhort us to deny the reality of the pain of life. Life is full of pain. It's full of deep sorrow. And this is where psychology falls so short in this world is that psychology is ever looking at man and, and trying to, to, to take hold of the narrative and, and help people create somehow a, a fantasy world or a, another way of thinking about this, the power of positive thinking so that you can, you can just sort of get past and sort of cope with the way life is. That's escapism. And the Bible never calls you to that. The Bible never calls you to, to place responsibility for your life on someone else so that you can feel better about yourself. The Bible enables us to look squarely in the face of sorrow and difficulty and all the challenges that come in this sin-filled world. And it says, look, in spite of all of that stuff, you have every reason in the world to rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ at all times in all circumstances Always. We have a confident hope and we have a, boy, a buoyant joy. And it's because Jesus is the light of the world and we walk in light. We can see. And it's because of who he is and what he has done and all that he has promised that we find ourselves lifted. Christ transcends the trouble of this world. What did he say? Be of good cheer. Why? For I've overcome the world. You see, there are small r, lowercase r, realities of this life. Yes, it's challenging. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, there are discouragements. Yes, children die. Yes, jobs are lost. Yes, marriages fail. Yes, illness invades. Yes, there's death. Those are realities, and we need not ignore those things. We simply call them what they are. They're smaller, lowercase realities. Uppercase, all capital letter realities are these things, that Christ has overcome all of that, that there is no condemnation in Christ, that we will never be separated from God because of him who loves us and all that he's done for us. He is the lover of our soul. He sustains our life. He's got this. He will get us through this. There's a glorious end to come. Beloved, we must not slump. We must not slump. And this is not stiff upper lip 
stuff. This is not, again, stoicism. We're not tough, right? That's, that's be tough, buck up. We're not tough. We're weak. But we have something far better than rawhide toughness. We've got Christ. (laughs) We're not passively resigned, are we, to in the the face of difficulties in this life. we're, We're called to something much higher than that. We are actively pursuing a mind that is fixed on the Lord Jesus and all that he's accomplished and all that we have in him. All that we will be by virtue of our union with him. These are the things that are unchanging. These are the things that are fixed. These are the realities that we meet by faith. We just sang that song and how it looks forward to the day what we actually heard in a couple hymns this morning, when the faith will become sight. That will be a glorious day. But as it is right now, we look, we look through the things that we encounter in this life, difficult as they are, and again, we're not false and fake and have a plasticized Christian grin about those things. They're heavy and they're weighty, but our minds are fixed on Christ and who he is and what he's done and where we're going, and that pulls us up so that our joy may be full in him. There's always ample reason for joy in Jesus, which is why Paul can command us to it. And again, it is a command. Listen, I want to be gentle. And I only say these things by way of encouragement. But beloved, joy is to be the dominant disposition of your life. Not to say you don't have a down day. Not to say that you're not discouraged at times. But the dominant disposition of our lives as the Lord's kids is one of joy. Paul says the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And therefore, Paul calls us to rejoice always. And to disobey this command is like disobeying any other. Listen, lying is a sin. So is lack of joy in your life. Stealing is a sin. So is a mopey attitude. Gloominess is not next to godliness. And crestfallen for Christ is not good advertising. Think about it. Beloved, think about it. We have the unsearchable riches of Christ. And yet some believers walk about as if they're utterly impoverished in this world. We have found the way and the truth and the life. And some believers have the demeanor of a lost dog. Tail between their legs, ears down panting as they go through life. We have in Christ every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And yet some believers look as though they have no blessings, as if they've been cursed by God. And you can see, can't you, why this is a moral issue. God is the most excellent, generous sovereign and gloriously good God there is. He is the only 
God there is. And he is good, and even the things that he sends your way by way of trial in your life are only intended for your good, which is why James says, look, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice in the face of trial. God's only seeking that you would be mature and complete and lacking in nothing. Joy is not optional in the Christian life. And if we're going to enjoy the rest that Christ established for us, if we're going to be a good testimony for Christ, well, then we must seek to cultivate a life of continual joy. Now, there's a second commandment in this section that Paul lays down. He calls us to cultivate a life, secondly, of peaceable kindness. Peaceable kindness. And do we need this in our day? We have been called a culture of complaint, a culture of outrage. And there is in our midst, as Alan said earlier, so much anger and anxiety and agitation. Everybody's scrapping and clawing for their little peace. Beloved, there is no room for that among us. We are not to be characterized by that kind of in-your-face contention. That is not who Christ was and is, and that is not how his children are to be characterized. We are not obnoxious people. We are not loud and demanding people. We're peaceable and we're marked by kindness. Look at verse 5. Paul says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Now, what does Paul mean when he calls us to a gentle spirit? It's a challenging word to translate. It's hard to find a single English equivalent. But the fact remains, we're going to have to work at this a little bit. Stay with me here, because if you're going to obey the command, you've got to know what the command is asking of you. Epe case. You can look, (laughs) in any concordance, you can look up, in the language tools, you can look it up, on the computer, and what you will find is just a whole list of words that approximate the idea. Moderate, patient, softness, gentleness, sweet reasonableness, a yieldedness, a geniality, kindliness, considerate, charitable, mild, generous, magnanimous, forbearing, I think what might help us here, it's only used a few times in Scripture, and we actually have the time this morning to look at these texts. Let's look at them and see if we can't glean by way of context and understanding a feeling perhaps for this word. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, where we find the qualifications listed for elders, for pastors in the church. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 3. The overseer then, verse 3, is not to be addicted to wine or, here's your word, here's, here's, here's the contrast, or pugnacious. You're not a pugilist. You're not a fighter. But gentle. There's our word. So it's set in contrast to contention, to being a fighter. It's the opposite of being a striker. 
You're not one who engages in relationships so as to, to inflict a wound. You could put it this way. This man or woman's passions are under control. They're not given to fleshly response in this regard. You're conciliatory. That's, that's really the picture here is that here's the pastor who is inevitably at times finds himself in conflict with people. And in the midst of that conflict, his inclination is not to be a striker, not to lash out, but his inclination is gentleness. His inclination is kindness. It's mercy. This guy is filled with peace and goodness so that he is wise and reasonable and merciful with people. He's not somebody who compromises with the truth. Don't get the wrong idea here. This is not somebody who's namby-pamby. This is somebody who, who is engaged and non-defensive. He's not a fighter and an arguer. He instructs patiently and with forbearance and gentleness. We'll flip over a couple of books. Keep going to the book of Titus in chapter 3 and verse 2. Paul begins in verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers. You see, you get a sense of this already, a call to submission to governing authority, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, here's our word, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Do you get a feeling for that word? We're not those who malign individuals. We're not, we don't major in criticism. Our aim instead is to be peaceable and to be gentle. Not peace at any cost. But again, we're not, we're not out to stir things up. We're not out to push back. We're in a situation where we're tempted to speak evil of somebody, but we, we restrain that in order to be conciliatory, in order to, to honor this individual, to demonstrate a respectful attitude, and we speak the things that are good for edification. Let's keep going. James chapter 3 and verse 17. James 3 and verse well, we'll pick up in verse 15, actually. Paul's contrasting two different types of wisdom. And he says there's one wisdom that comes down or comes, comes, comes up. <laughs> it's earthly, it's natural, it's demonic, verse 15. He says, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But there's another kind of wisdom that comes from above which is first pure and peaceable and gentle. You hear the, the repetition of those terms again. Pure and peaceable, gentle, it's reasonable. It's full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. It's truthful. It doesn't compromise. It's unwavering on the truth, but it's able to speak truth in a way that's not agitated. All of these things, we have seen these same things, all these ideas again of, of peaceableness and gentleness and mercy 
in, in the book of Philippians. 1 Peter chapter 2. verse 18, we see contrasted here two types of masters, servants or slaves. He says, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good, and here's our word, and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. See that that, again, it's set in contrast so that we can understand this. There are, there are two masters. One of them is good and gentle. They're peaceable. They're kind. They're reasonable. And then there's another kind of master who's unreasonable. He's just a brash bully. He's, he's asserting his authority. He's dictatorial. He's unreasonable. He's got his finger pointing at you constantly, barking out orders. He's one of those because I said so kind of guys. That's not who we are. That's not what Christ was like. That's not what we are to be like. And so this gentle spirit of which Paul refers is a peaceable kindness. I really think that gets the idea of it across. MacArthur called it, if I can remember, he called it a humble graciousness. A humble graciousness. It is a peaceable kindness. There is a forbearance that rises above personal conflicts and personal offenses. You're not a contender. You're not intimidating in your manner. You're not aggressive. You're not authoritative. You're not swift to defend yourself. You're not someone who's a stickler for your rights. You're gracious with people. You're thoughtful. You're respectful. You're patient especially when under fire. One commentator says this, quote, the immediate outward expression of a rejoicing heart, he's connecting the two together, rejoice in the Lord always, and now we're to have this gentle spirit. He says the immediate and outward expression of a rejoicing heart is Christ-like gentleness toward all people. It It necessarily involves the patient bearing of abuse. That is a good statement. That's accurate. How do you bear up under the abuse of people when it's unjust? You see, this kind of attitude flourishes in the soil of Christ-like humility. He's right. There is this humility that results in an attitude of gentleness toward people. In fact, 2 Corinthians 10.1 tells us that the Lord himself is characterized by meekness and gentleness. It's the same word group. And so the, you can remember this. To be gentle is to be like Jesus. And again, we're not talking about weakness, are we? Is anybody going to accuse Christ of being weak? Is anybody going to accuse Jesus of being too soft? Friend, if you look at Christ that way, you've misunderstood who Jesus is. You've misunderstood a godly masculinity. Jesus defines what a man is. And to be like Jesus, then, is to be gentle. Brothers, in particular, we need to be cultivating this in our lives with our wives, with our children with people in the workplace as we are able. 
This is a Christ-like spirit. You remember Jesus who suffered such hostility against himself and yet he did it with gentleness. You remember Jesus who was reviled and yet he did not what? Revile in return. You remember Jesus who said that when you were struck on one cheek, you should do what? Turn the other. And you remember Jesus who while suffering uttered no threats and you remember Jesus who continued to what? Constantly entrust himself to the one who judges righteously. We're so easily, so quickly drawn into defense as if somehow we've got to vindicate our name. Listen, just follow in the footsteps of Christ. He left you an example to follow in his footsteps, didn't he? And those footsteps led to suffering, unjust suffering. And yet, his mindset the whole time was entrusting himself to the Father. Lord, you know. Father, you know. You know what is true. We can do the same thing. And we can keep our eyes fixed on Christ that we might walk this journey as he did. I guess I could put it this way. This kind of virtue in your life begins really not with a yieldedness to your opponent. It begins with a yieldness, yieldedness to God himself, doesn't it? Who orchestrates all our circumstances. Who places every individual who comes in and across our path. Who gives us our children. Who gave us our spouse. Who planted us in this church. Who planted us in this community. He is sovereign over all. And so to become a brawler against any of that stuff, to grow all agitated and frustrated, to live your life in anger and discouragement, says I, I, somehow God's separated from all of this. You see, when I submissively look to him and say, Lord, I know that nothing happens to me apart from your will and your design, then that enables me to encounter these things with stability, with ballast, and not to be shaken by them. I want you to note those two words in there. He says we're to manifest this before all men, before the children of God and before the children of this world. And you've got to remember who's writing this and where he is. It's the Apostle Paul. He's on house arrest. He's been on house arrest. He's chained to a guard or between guards. He was under, you remember, a Roman emperor who claimed to be God and demanded allegiance. He was falsely accused and then subsequently arrested, and he's been kept in chains for years. He was denied his freedom, his inalienable rights. He's bereft of those things, and over him hangs the sentence of death, not for anything he's done, but for righteousness' sake. He had wronged no one, and all of this is unjust, and all of this is unfair, and it's instructive to think that the man who pens these things writes them from that context, and he writes them to a church that is facing significant persecution for their faith. They were Roman citizens living in a, a Roman colony. 
And yet they would not bow the knee to Caesar. And the impact of the gospel among them and in that community, you remember from the book of Acts, had poked a significant hole in the pocketbooks of those who were making idols in that city. People were turning from idols to the true God. And there was pressure from this society to compromise. And there was, as I stated earlier, infighting within the church. And Paul says to them, look, you must rejoice in the Lord. And secondly, you must do that always. And beyond that, there is to be in you, brothers and sisters, a gentleness that is mindful of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting, as we make our way through this text, you'll see it over and over and over again. The terminal end of every one of these is the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you find joy and rest in a tumultuous, restless world, keeping your mind stayed on Christ? How do you then manifest this kind of gentleness? How do you see this realized in your heart so that your dealings with others are full of gentleness and patience and kindness and goodness and all of these sorts of things. Well, understand this. Paul says at the latter part of verse 5, the Lord is at hand. Do you see? He causes them to think again about the reality of the one who is at hand. Now, there are two possibilities for what Paul means by this and perhaps a third. Paul may have in mind, he he might be referring to the spiritual proximity of Christ to every believer. Didn't Jesus say to us, I will never leave you or forsake you? Didn't Jesus say to us, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age? Didn't Jesus promise his people that when he left, he would send what? Another helper, another of the same kind who who would comfort them and who would encourage them. And so he gave us the indwelling spirit. And so what is Paul saying? He's saying, look, right here, right now, in the midst of this context, in the midst of your difficulty, in the midst of this trial, Christ is right there. He's at your side. He is alongside of you to help. The Lord is near. David echoed that same kind of thing, didn't he? In Psalm 23, when he said, I fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. So Christ is our ever-present help in trouble. He is always near. Paul may have had that intent when he wrote these things. On the other hand, Paul may have been thinking about the return of the Lord when he wrote, the Lord is at hand. This too is a theme of scripture and an encouragement to believers. Look at James again. You may still be there. In chapter 5, Beginning in verse 7. Therefore be patient, brethren. Why does he say that? (laughs) Because things are provoking in this life. Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and the late rains. You too, as if you didn't hear him the first time, you too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is what? Near. The Lord is near. 
I love this, his next words. Do not complain, brethren, against one another. The very same words that Paul's already spoken to the, to the Philippian church. What happens when your kids get impatient on a trip in the back seat? Complaint, infighting, right? That's mine. You're on my side of the seat. Stop. And it just goes on. Paul says, no, no. Patience. James says, patience. The Lord is coming. The Lord is near. You can bear up under this. Do not complain against one another that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You've heard of the endurance of Job and seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. The Lord is full of compassion, and he is merciful. You've seen what's happened in the past with other believers. The Lord always comes through. He always delivers. He is at hand. Be patient. Just flip a couple of pages to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Paul's urging these people to put off the flesh, to war against their fleshly impulses. Then he says to them in verse 7, he says, listen, the end of all things is near. Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. And above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Do you see how he keeps coming back to this issue of fellowship, of unity? Because love covers a multitude of sins. What's that encouragement? The Lord's coming. Persevere. Persevere. He's going to bring an end to all of these things. Let's, let's, let's look at one more passage for our encouragement, and that is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to you, to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly among the churches of God, for your perseverance in the faith in the midst of all your persecutions and your inflictions in which you endure. They're really going through it. And he says, this is plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well Note this, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven, that's when relief comes with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. It's at the coming of Christ that all that is wrong will be made right, and that's intended for our encouragement. So, which is it? Was it Paul's intent to remind us of Christ's imminent presence 
immediate presence, I should say, or was it his purpose to encourage us by the imminence of his return? And my question to you is, I wonder really whether we have to choose. I mean, are these things not both clearly taught in scripture? Jesus is, in fact, at your right hand to help you and to strengthen you and to help you in your moment of need. And Jesus is, in fact, coming back and he is coming soon. You say, well, that's a hermeneutical cop-out. Maybe, but maybe Paul intended two things. I don't know. You ever said anything with a double entendre, a double meaning, a double, maybe. I don't know. I don't know what the answer to the question is. I'm just raising it as a potential, as I said. Whatever the case, the Lord is near and we must be gentle. Beloved, listen, if you want to be a witness for Christ in this life, you need to start right here. You need to evaluate your life and seek to lead one that is full of joy in the Lord. You need to lead a life that demonstrates a patient kindness toward everybody you encounter. Those are two great steps to being a great witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. You have a joyful heart despite your circumstances, and especially in difficult circumstances, you will be salt in this world of decay. And you cultivate the kind of humility that loves people, that treats them with genuine respect and regard as image bearers of God. You live towards them in a spirit of gentleness and patience and kindness, especially when they mistreat you. I tell you, you will be a light in this world. You will shine like a city on a hill. That is absolutely as abnormal as it gets in this life. People who can rejoice in trial and people who are kindly patient with others. Beloved, you live like this and you will do as Paul said of the Philippians. You will prove yourselves blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, you will appear as lights in the world. You're going to be delightfully different in the likeness of your Savior. You see, when, when, when we are at rest in this world, when there is a joy about our demeanor, when there is a kindness that is evident to all, it's then that you put the glorious display of the sufficiency of Christ before the eyes of men. Jesus is enough for you. You don't need good circumstances. Jesus is enough for you. You don't need the respect and kindness and, and love and affirmation of others. You don't need to be liked on Facebook. It isn't about you. It's about him and all in him, all in Jesus I find. I am satisfied I am satisfied with joy, and I am satisfied in being accepted by him. I am content, and I have learned to be content in any and every circumstance. You see, when he is the ballast of your life, then you can be at rest in a restless world. And it's then that you'll be able to give the reason for the hope that lies within you. It's then that you will have ground to speak of him with others. May the Lord help us to this end. Let's pray together as the music team comes forward. Our Lord, this is a warring world. It is a world filled with sin 
and strife. And Lord, you have come to make peace. You have come to make peace on behalf of your people, to draw us into relationship that is reconciled and at rest. Lord, you are our peace, and we thank you for your reconciling work on the cross. We thank you for the imputed righteousness we have by your righteous life. We thank you, Lord, that we have been accepted by God. We thank you that we have been adopted. We thank you, Lord, that we have all that you've given to us, the blessings of, of fellowship within the church, the, the, the wonder of being able to pray and to cast all of our cares on you, the temporal gifts of marriage and family and good food. Lord, we have nothing to complain about. Forgive us for our complaining. And I pray, Lord, that you would teach us to rejoice in Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that this church might be satisfied in the sufficiency of Christ to such an extent that we would, in fact, be buoyant people, that this would be a buoyant body, that, yes, we could weep with those who weep, even in joy, and that we could rejoice with those who rejoice and even a more obvious joy. Lord, that we would be like Christ himself who was anointed with joy above his brethren. Lord, that we too would manifest that mark of our contentedness in Christ and that we would have, as Jesus did, that peaceable kindness with others so that others might know you. Lord, forgive us for our harshness at times, for our lack of love. Help us again to live in a way that honors you so that your name might not be blasphemed among the Gentiles. Lord, use us. Magnify your name through us and grow your kingdom, we ask, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.